I'm reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Thank you, Val. Good morning. On August 1st of this year, Alec Kornicke was working on his car in the garage. He had the wheel off, he was underneath the car, and the jack collapsed. The entire weight of the car fell on him, crushing him, stopping his breathing and stopping his heart. His daughter found him, Lauren, says this is what she did in her own words. I lifted the car up. I kind of threw it, she told NBC. I just shoved my body into it as hard as I could, and then I came back and dragged him out and started CPR. After several rounds of CPR, his heart suddenly started again. He started breathing again. She saved his life. Our bodies, physical bodies, are amazing, aren't they? They're capable of amazing feats. Here's the young woman who lifted a car to save her father. Our bodies are capable of amazing feats of strength and endurance. You are here this morning because you're a walking miracle of God's amazing power and grace in our bodies, his handiwork, all our parts working together so that you can be sitting here listening to me this morning. But too many of us, and we've heard just this morning, hear the word cancer. Cancer attacks our bodies. If it's cancer and it's allowed to spread, it will destroy the proper functioning of these physical bodies we live in. Cancer must be stopped or our bodies will die. So, surgery, chemo, radiation, whatever it takes, the cancer must be eradicated for us to live and go on. Well, the body of Christ, the church, is amazing too. (laughs) It's an amazing place where God dwells. It's His Temple. You may notice our new collage up front that represents the book of 1 Corinthians. 
It's spaces from our body, just meant to be representative of how our lives are built upon one another and together we form the temple of God, the place where God dwells and is expanding His kingdom in the world. The body of Christ is able to lift the burden of sin off of people and resuscitate them from their spiritual death. And we, as part of the body of Christ, get to be part of that amazing feat. In fact, I think the body of Christ is the most powerful force for good in our world today when it is healthy. (laughs) But if sin is allowed to dwell in it, that sin becomes like a cancer to weaken and destroy the functioning of the body so that it doesn't accomplish what God designed it to do and be. So our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses this cancer, a specific sin in the body that's invaded the church in Corinth. And it's a cancer that if it's allowed to live, it will destroy the body. It will destroy the proper functioning of the whole church. So Paul says, do surgery. Deal with it. You must deal with sin in the body or it will destroy the whole church. And this passage causes us to wrestle with this whole idea of purity in the church. What, what does that look like for us? How are we in the body of Christ today and specifically here at Cole Community Church to deal with sin and in particular unrepentant sin in the body? Well, this passage will help us to understand that much more fully. So pray with me. Lord, as we enter into difficult subjects like this, dealing with sin in the body of Christ, a cancer that can destroy, we pray for your spirit of grace to be on me, that your words might be from you, and that our hearts would be open to hearing what you have for each of us to hear this morning. Thank you that you created this amazing thing, the body of Christ, and you've called us each to be part of it. Thank you that you long for us to be holy as you are holy. So Lord, teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins with facing the issue, this cancer that has invaded the church in Corinth, this crazy situation In verse 1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. The word there for immorality is sexual immorality. And immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Clearly a euphemism for sleeping with his father's wife. And he says, what's going on among you is So bizarre, even the culture of Corinth wouldn't accept it. It's a man sleeping probably with his stepmother because otherwise he wouldn't call him his father's wife. Paul has heard about this going on in the church and he's upset. Now remember what Corinth, the pagan city, was like. It was well known for its sexual immorality. There was the temple of Aphrodite there where there were a thousand cult prostitutes and that's how you came to worship 
You were with the prostitutes. It was a very sexually immoral culture. To Corinthianize was a common term in those days that meant to commit sexual immorality. That's the reputation that Corinth had. If you were called a Corinthian girl, it was the same as calling someone a prostitute. So that's the culture that they lived in. And Paul says, what's going on in the church between this man and this woman is so gross, even the city of Corinth thinks it's disgusting. (laughs) This was clearly condemned in the Old Testament law. And it's even, as we see, condemned even in this culture in Corinth that was of such low morals. How did this happen? We don't know exactly. Perhaps this man's mother died and so the father married a younger woman and then either the father died or perhaps he's still alive, but they now, this young man and his stepmother, have gotten together and they're sleeping together. Paul's upset, though, notice, not just because it was happening, but because of their response to it as a church body. He says, you become arrogant, puffed up, proud about this, and haven't mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul is upset because they're tolerating it, and not just tolerating it, they seem to have an arrogance about it. Hey, look what this guy's doing. Isn't this great? They're not just not removing him from the church, but they're puffed up. They're proud. Now, how can that be? What's going on in them that they would allow this to go on in the church and that they would be actually proud of it? Well, most commentators, and this seems to be the best explanation, see it as a celebration of grace. Think about the Christian life and the tension we live in in the Christian life that we all live. On the one hand is grace and forgiveness. That in Christ, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the cross, we are utterly forgiven. We're saved by faith alone. Suddenly we have free access to the Father through Jesus Christ when we put our faith in Him and the cross of what He's done for us. All our sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood of Jesus and we are free in Christ and our actions no longer determine God's love for us. That's incredible grace. But at the same time, on the other hand, God is a righteous, holy God. And in His holiness, He says, Be holy as I am holy. And clearly, if we are truly saved, if the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has come to dwell in us, we've received Him as Savior and Lord, then we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we will grow over time to be more and more like Jesus. Yes, it's a process. Yes, we all sin. Yes, we all fail. But we come to Him for, in repentance and we long for Him to change us and we want to grow. We hunger and thirst for that to be more like Him if His Spirit of God is in us and prompting us to be like Him. So we grow in obedience 
And we grow through the power of the Holy Spirit to be more like Him. So on the one hand, we have freedom in Christ. We have grace. And on the other hand, we long to grow in righteousness and we grow to be more like Him. The problem for us is when we lose that tension, that balance, and either overemphasize grace. Isn't grace great so I can do whatever I want, right? Many Christians say that. Or to go the other way and become a legalist. It's all about my actions and we're so concerned about doing everything right. We're overwhelmed with guilt and pressure. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace is when we overemphasize grace and forget the holiness that God calls us to. Well, I suspect what's going on in the church in Corinth is they're celebrating grace. They're saying we're free in Christ. God's blood covers everything. Jesus' blood for us, his death. And so here's a guy that may have been a leader at the church in Corinth, perhaps, and he's getting away with this, and they were probably a little shocked, but they're going, yeah, but we're celebrating grace. You know, we're forgiven, and so we have free access, and isn't grace wonderful? We're not legalists. So they seem to be flaunting their freedom in Christ and ignoring the call to holiness that God is giving us. Look how free we are in Christ, but they're ignoring what God calls them to. So Paul goes on to deal with this, but, but just let me say it's clearly an example of unrepentant sin. God always forgives repentant sin, sin where we admit we're wrong, we come to him for forgiveness, and we really honestly want him to change us. We're not going to hang on to that and say, no way, I, I'm hanging on to the sin. But clearly, this is an example of unrepentant sin, and that's what we're talking about here. God's forgiveness is always there for repentant sin, but here's unrepentant sin. So Paul goes on to say, don't wait for me to come. I've already judged this person. They're part of the body of Christ, and look at the sin they're committing. He says, don't wait for me to come, but gather together as a church body, he says. And as the church body together, with my endorsement and in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one over to Satan. Put him out of the church. What does that mean? That's powerful terms, right? Deliver him over to Satan? What's he mean by that? Well, I think it means put him out of the church so that he'll be in the realm where Satan reigns, out in the world. It says, do that for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved. In other words, send him out away from the church. He can no longer be under the protection of the church body where God is dwelling and people are bringing forgiveness and life and acceptance in the body of Christ. Send him out in the world to experience the full extent and consequences of living in the flesh in the hope that he will ultimately repent as he experiences the full wretchedness of his own choices and his own sin and hopefully in the long run be saved. So notice Paul's whole purpose of this is for the man's good, out of love for him. It's for his redemption so that he won't continue to be able to just live as he is and not be faced with the consequences of his sin. So he says, deliver him to Satan. Put him out of the church so that he can experience the full extent of his sin and 
hopefully come to a place of brokenness and repentance. What does this mean for us today? Well, we'll get into a little more specifics in a few moments, but note it is a little harder for us today because of our culture in America. We have so many churches, right? If we confront someone about their sin and they leave the church, if they leave Cole Community Church because we've confronted them, they can just go to another church and not tell their story and not have to experience life apart from the body of Christ. They get to do that. So that makes it much harder today than it was for them where they only had one church in a whole community. And if you're put out of that church, you had no other options. But we still trust that God honors his word and calls us to think hard about the purity of the church and what it means for us to be the body of Christ together, loving one another well. Why does Paul make such a big deal about this? Why is it so important to deal with unrepentant sin? After all, shouldn't we be loving and accepting Stop being so judgmental, pointing fingers at one another. That's what we hear a lot, right? And I understand that. We, we want the acceptance and love of Christ, but, but we need to always keep that tension in mind that God calls us to holiness as well, to Christ-likeness. And what does that look like in the body? Why, why must we deal with unrepentant Sin. Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verses 6 through 8. He says, Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You see, what he's saying there is the little sin, if it's not repented of, if it's not being dealt with, but it's just obvious and unrepented, then it permeates the whole body. It corrupts the whole body, just like leaven spreads throughout the whole lump of dough, just like cancer, if it isn't dealt with, begins to spread through the body and begin to destroy the life of the body as a whole. You see, sin that's unrepentant, it weakens the spiritual state of the whole body. It's a slippery slope. It lowers the morality of the whole body. It is like leaven. It is like sewage that seeps into a river and and corrupts the river. So what does Paul do? He says, verse 7, clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. He says, you are a new creation. You are unleavened. God has cleansed you, so now live like it (laughs) and clean out the old leaven that is so destructive. And then he says, do this because, verse 8, therefore let us celebrate the feast. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. One of the main reasons we need to deal with sin in the body, clean it out, not let it live, is because with it there we can't celebrate what God has done like he's called us to. He, he draws this analogy to the Passover feast. Now remember that when the Passover was instituted, this feast, when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, they'd been slaves for 400 years. 
And then God came with the ten plagues that He initiated through Moses. And the last plague was the killing of the firstborn and blood had to be, the Passover lamb was slain and blood had to be put on the doorposts of the house so that the angel of death would pass over. And the people were to clean out the leaven in their house and tuck their robes in so they'd be ready to go, ready to travel, holding their staff. And then when the firstborn were all killed throughout Egypt, finally Pharaoh let them go free. And it was their day of redemption. So every year, still, the Jews celebrate the Passover feast. This Passover that we are to celebrate of Jesus being the Passover lamb who died for us. And he says, we celebrate this because Jesus has come as the Passover lamb to free us from sin. You see, when he died, Jesus freed us from the penalty of sin. We're given eternal life, no longer judged, no longer separated from God. But what we need to remember is he not only freed us from the penalty of sin, but his death freed us from the power of sin. And therefore, we are to learn over time to depend on that power and to learn to live holy lives, to put off the old man, to put off sin, and to put on the life of Christ in us more and more. And again, this is a lifetime process, right? And we're growing and we're growing. But we must not just say, no, I'm going to hold on to this sin no matter what. I will not change because when we do that, we are unrepentant and it brings destruction to our own lives and to the body. So Paul has a heart for us. Why must we deal with sin in the body of Christ? Because for one, it'll corrupt the whole body if it's not dealt with, if it's unrepentant. And number two, because it prevents us from really celebrating what Jesus has done for us in being our Passover lamb. It really, ultimately, when we hang on to sin and refuse to change, it denies the cross. It defiles the body. It destroys our worship. And it prevents our ability to impact this dark world and be this incredible force in the community to bring light and life to a dark world. That's why it's so important, Paul says, to clean out the cupboard of sin, to keep working at it, keep repenting, keep dealing with it among the body of Christ. So how should we deal with unrepentant sinners, both outside the body of Christ and in the body of Christ? He makes a clear distinction, you'll notice in these last few verses, 9 through 13, between unbelievers, those outside the church, and those inside the church. He says in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So Paul says, I wrote in my last letter something, but you've misunderstood it. Now, notice that this letter is 1 Corinthians, right? That we're studying. And yet he says, I wrote a letter earlier. Well, to really confuse you, so there's 1 Corinthians. So really, our 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. And there was another letter he wrote in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So really, our 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians. How's that for confusion? <laughs> we just don't have the first and the third one, so we just call them number one, 
Number two, he says, I wrote earlier not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of this world. He says, um, don't get confused here. When I say don't associate with immoral people, I don't mean the unbelievers of the world. In fact, I want you to be in the world, loving unbelievers. Of course they're idolaters. Of course they're immoral. Of course they are revilers and covetous and greedy. They don't know anything else. They don't have the life of Christ. But the implication is we ought to have non-believing friends and be involved in their lives and reaching out to them and bring light into the darkness of their lives. Don't avoid them, he says. Stay in contact with them. Keep loving them and keep seeking to bring them the gospel. He says very clearly it's not our job to judge them. Notice down in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. We, we make a mistake when we, as believers, point fingers at the unbelieving world. Boy, they're bad. Well, of course they're sinners. They need Jesus. And so bring them the gospel. Paul is saying. And in the end, God will judge them, but don't you be the judge of them. That's not your job. But love them. Bring them the gospel. But then he says, but actually, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. And then in verse 13 he says, but those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. See, it's never our job to point fingers at unbelievers and of course we're told not to judge one another, right? So we struggle with this. Take the log out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in someone else's eye, but... The implication is we still need to deal with the speck in one another's eyes if it's so clearly there. What he's talking about here is so-called believers who are so obviously caught in sin and refuse to repent, refuse to get help, refuse to deal with it. And he gives six categories. These are not meant to be all-inclusive, but they give us a picture of what he's saying that it's not just sexual immorality, though that's part of it, we should be concerned if we hear, we're not to pursue each other's lives and what sin are you struggling with, but when it's obvious to us and we know a brother and sister that are sleeping together out of wedlock or we know of things that are going on that shouldn't, he says, we need to deal with that as the body of Christ. He gives the category of the greedy people, covetous, those who live for money and live for things, and that characterizes their life. Notice that all of these are descriptions of people. This is the quality of their life. This is what characterizes them. This is what drives them. A greed for money or things. 
an idolater, in other words, putting other things above God, whether it's status or power or position, they clearly set aside God to pursue these other things. Someone who's abusive in language, the reviler, it says, somebody who is critical and tears people down all the time and never deals with that and doesn't even see it as a problem. They're unrepentant of it, even when confronted. Those who are drunkards, it says, well, in our culture, I would say addicted, where they're clearly addicted to something and they will not get help and they will not deal with it. The thief, the embezzler, someone who steals from other people, who takes from them and are unwilling to change. Again, these are just representative. There's other things we could put in here, but he's saying these things are just representative of sins that we might need to say, wow, that's really obvious in this person's life. I need to love them enough to come into their life and deal with it. And if they won't ultimately deal with it in the long run, maybe they need to be put out of the church. So he says, purge the church. He quotes Deuteronomy here. You see, the health of the body depends on getting rid of the cancer. The health of the body of Christ depends on getting rid of those who refuse to deal with sin in their lives. So how do we live this out today? 2012, Cole Community Church. (laughs) Well, it's a challenge. But I am proud to be part of Cole Community Church because we are a church who seeks to live this out the best way we can, to really love people the best way we can and encourage them to deal with sin in their lives. So we have at times had to say, you're no longer welcome at Cole until you're willing to deal with your sin. We don't do that often, but we do it some. We have a, on the back wall, policy for handling matters of church intervention. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to pick one up and read it. It it explains our policy of how we seek to Go to Matthew 18 where it says very clearly, and let me read those verses 15 through 17 to you, where Jesus gives us a clear guideline for reaching out in love for lost sheep that are struggling with sin. Matthew 18, verse verse 15 says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, let him be to you as someone who's not welcome in the church, but who needs Christ and needs the gospel, needs to repent. It's all about going after lost sheep because you love them and you want them to know the truth and, and the body needs purification, needs to be pure. Why is this so important? Because the health of the church depends on it. Does it work? Well, it's very interesting. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul addresses a situation that most scholars think is the same situation, the same guy. And in verse 6 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, he says, Sufficient for such a one 
is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. If it's the same guy, but even if it isn't, it's an example of someone who was confronted, put out of the church, and was welcomed back when he finally came to a place of repentance. David Roper writes of a friend of his, a man I have met. He says, Some years ago I received a letter from a dear friend who was disciplined by a body of Christians in another state and then restored. He wrote as follows, Several years ago you took public action against me in accordance with Matthew 18. The charges against me were true. After I became a Christian 18 years ago, I failed to deal thoroughly with lust and covetousness. In time, I became self-deceived, proud, and arrogant. Moreover, eventually God shouted upon the housetops that which I had desperately tried to keep hidden. God finally led me, let me go into alcoholism and sexual immorality, both of which were worse than I experienced before my conversion. Twice I went through the horror and hell of manic depressive psychoses that I might learn that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I am fortunate to be alive. I came close to suicide and should have died in disgrace, except God has forgiven me. I am in need of your forgiveness, for I have wronged you all. It is impossible for me to retrace my footsteps and right every wrong. However, I welcome the opportunity to meet and pray with you. I am looking and waiting for the further grace and mercy of God in this matter, what you have bound on earth was bound in heaven. And now I know that your actions were done in love for my own good and for that of the body. David writes, my friend is now fully reengaged in fellowship and ministry. He stands in an example of the love of God and the love of his people. We've had people we put out of the church here at Cole Community Church. I'm thinking of one person in particular who was unrepentant but she came to the elders years later and said I was wrong I want to restore fellowship I sin what you did was right you know what we did we threw a welcome home party for her we got a cake we invited everybody and we had a celebration welcoming the prodigal home. See, that's what God wants us to do, to celebrate forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. Are you trapped in sin and need a way out? Well, get help. Talk to a pastor. Get a counselor. Do something. Talk to a friend. Don't let it live because it, it harms you and it harms the body. And if you know someone, another believer, who's choosing ongoing sin and not willing to deal with it, please talk to them. Talk to a pastor who can help you walk this through, how to love them in the best way. But for their sake and for the sake of the body, don't let it go on. And most of all, let's celebrate the Passover lamb who has set us free from the penalty of sin and has given us new life so we can begin to walk in that and learn to walk in this new life in Christ to celebrate who He is, 
who set us free from the power of sin so that we can be a worshiping, pure people set apart for his glory so that we might impact this world that so desperately needs the light that we have to offer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for calling us out of darkness, giving us complete and utter forgiveness, and planting your spirit in us that we might live in newness of life with you. Lord, for those of us that are trapped in sin and can't seem to overcome it, help us to humble ourselves and get help that you might set us free. Purify us, Lord, that we might be the body of Christ that you've called us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.